want our children and our grandchildren, but we are not allowed to keep them. We do not get any kind of information from the county welfare. All we could say is that they tell our Indian parents that they are not fit to raise their children. These welfare people took me in and they wanted to take the child and I said, no, I can't let him go. He went out and he grabbed the child. While I was pregnant with Bobby and the welfare kept coming over there and asked me if I'd give him up for adoption. You mean while you were pregnant with him? Yeah. What's the difference between an Indian home where there's plenty of love? If the child is barefoot, a little bit dirty, he's got jam on his nose, so what? He's happy, I think. And in white families, I've seen the same thing. The kids are happy too. They're barefoot out in the yard sometimes, and everybody seems to be all right there. The parents scold them. I don't see anything wrong. Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. A few weeks ago on the show, we spoke with Allison Herrera, the indigenous affairs reporter at KOSU in Oklahoma, about the federal Indian boarding school program and what reparation could look like for indigenous families who are still healing from the abuse of that program. Allison joins us again this week to talk about the results of a different federal policy, one that tribes have been fighting to keep intact the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is often referred to as ICWA. The law has been in the news lately because it just survived a high-stakes challenge before the Supreme Court. ICWA was enacted after a congressional investigation found that more than a third of all Native children who child welfare agencies had removed from their homes had been placed with non-Native families and with foster families without any ties to their tribes. And this was happening long after that federal boarding school program was phased out in the 1960s. So Native activists spent years calling on Congress to do something about this situation. And in 1978, ICWA was finally signed into law. It requires that child welfare agencies make an active effort to keep Native children with their tribes and their families. And it's been a huge success. Advocates have called it the gold standard of child welfare policy. But it was in danger because a white family from Texas argued that the law discriminated against them because of their race. The case made its way all the way to the Supreme Court, and to the surprise of many, earlier this month, the court ruled to keep the law intact in a 7-2 to two decision. Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas were the only two who dissented. So on the show this week, we want to tell you a good news story about what happens when a law works. KOSU reporter Allison Herrera is going to tell us the story of Hodali and Jamie Sewell and their family. And it illustrates exactly how ICWA was designed to function. I'm driving through Claremore, Oklahoma, within the Cherokee Nation Reservation to get to a community called Bushy Head. It's about sunset. And even though it's bright and sunny, as I make my way down the Will Rogers Turnpike, I can see a very typical spring storm building in the distance. I'm going to meet Hodali Sewell. He and his wife, Jamie, live in a tidy one-story house down a gravel road here. 
Hi, how are you? Doing great. Good to see you. The Sewell's house sits in a rural part of northeastern Oklahoma called Bushyhead. This is Bushyhead community. Named after the Cherokee Nation principal chief Dennis Wolf Bushyhead, one of the tribal leaders after the Cherokee Nation were forcibly removed on the Trail of Tears from the southeast. Their home is connected to the larger city of Claremore by a two-lane road lined with white oaks and eastern red cedar trees. A few miles down from their house is a popular fishing spot. And how long have you guys lived out here for? Oh, a little over two years mm-hmm. in Bushy Head. Um, it's really pretty out there. Hodley likes the neighborhood. It's quiet, and there's plenty of space for exploring outdoors, setting up a stickball court, and he's close to their neighbors, too. It's beautiful, and I bought the property, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, mm-hmm. planning to come out this way. But now that we've been out here, our neighbor, John Jumper, is a wonderful elder. and our Even though it's really beautiful here, like some parts of rural Oklahoma, drug activity disrupts the community. It's the main reason Hodeli and his wife Jamie want to sell their property and move into Claremore. Go to town so she's got a better opportunity, you know. Hodeli is of Muscogee descent and has ties with the Sumter tribe of Sherrill Indians, which is a state-recognized tribe in South Carolina. He moved to Oklahoma several years ago and met his wife, Jamie, who's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. They're also caring for a little girl who's just over a year old. We're calling her Noni in this story to protect her identity. Oh, good deal. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. What's the matter? <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful smile. She is a really beautiful baby. Yeah. She does have a beautiful smile. And although she's crawling around, energetic and smiley, it's her nap time. <laughs> Another reason they want to move to Claremore? Better schools, and they'll be closer to their adult children, who can help care for Noni. We're off to the adventure. Yeah. You know, this is, I've lived, I raised my son as a single parent. He's 33 now. And then I got daughters 24. I co-parented, you know, raising her. But it's what you do when you raised, at least in part, around your tribal community. Hodley upholds his values as an indigenous person above all else. And caring for others is a big part of that. We don't leave nobody out. We don't leave nobody to, to suffer. We step in. I've been a member of the American Indian Movement my whole life, so... These are the values we live by. Mm-hmm. Sobriety, support, spirituality, sovereignty, you know. These are the values he wants to pass on to Noni. So I'm glad to have another generation now mm-hmm. to help raise and teach and learn our language, learn our religion, learn our culture, you know. That's what matters. Okay. It's mainly. Hodeli is 53 years old and his wife Jamie is 47. Even though they have adult children, they're both enjoying being new parents. They want to raise their new daughter in the Cherokee and Muscogee communities, and they want her to have a sense of her culture and where she comes from. Eat the monkey. That's my eel. Do you, do you guys speak Cherokee? Or? I speak Creek. I, I speak Creek pretty good. Mm-hmm. I'm not fluent, fluent. I'm pretty good, though. And I'm learning Cherokee for my wife's sake. We got Cherokee materials and... I can tell her any Creek word. I teach her how to speak Creek, but... If Teaching Noni, Muscogee, and Cherokee is really important at this age. Because if you don't grow up hearing the language, it's harder to learn. So she's learning slowly but surely, uh, Cherokee, you know. 
But I speak Creek, and that's where I teach in her is, is Creek. I just, I owe it to the next generation that she have the opportunity to learn about who she is. And she's part Creek and part Cherokee. As soon as she can walk, I'm going to have her out in the ring dancing with me. Hodeli and his wife want Noni to embrace both cultures. That's why they want to take her to stomp dances and other things in the Cherokee and Muskogee community. Now, on the weekends, we like to go do stuff in our our corner, yeah. you know, because I'm a straight dancer. We already got her stomp dance skirt. We got her everything, and she didn't walk yet. After he picks Noni up from daycare, they go home to play, have lunch, and explore the outdoors around their property. Hodeli also uses this time to teach her some Muskogee words. We're teaching her that when you, you know, you hand me something, I say thank you, and I hand you something, you say thank you, but uh, she's saying words like that. And I'm already teaching her and telling her words in our language just so it don't never be in her memory, oh, that's when my dad started trying to teach me. And she'll it'll always be a flow where I'll be like, you know, whatever we're talking about, like, you know, come with me or look at that bird or whatever it is. A car pulls up in the driveway. It's Jamie. It's baby. And Noni is very excited. Oh, Mama's home. Here we go. Now the party begins. Now the party's really going to be. Hi, I'm Allison. Nice to meet you, Jamie. As soon as Jamie gets out of the car, Noni practically leaps into her arms. <laughs> She's so excited. Jamie currently works as a loan officer in nearby Broken Arrow. In a former life, she was a foster mom, specifically for Native children, under the Indian Child Welfare Act. The Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, is a law that was passed in 1978. Its goal was to keep Native families together after a century of policies and practices that sought to erase tribal culture. First, by sending children to federally run Indian boarding schools from the late 19th century until the late 1960s. In the 1960s, the Bureau of Indian Affairs ran the Indian Adoption Program that encouraged white families to adopt Native children. The effects were devastating. Then, in the 1970s, after searing congressional testimony by Native women that detailed how their children were taken away, Congress acted and passed ICWA. Recently, the nearly 45-year-old law survived a challenge before the U.S. Supreme Court. In a 72 decision, the justices rejected claims that the law was unconstitutional and is race-based. Tribal leaders and advocates were overjoyed. When Jamie was a foster parent, she adopted one of the children she cared for, a 15-year-old Cherokee boy. She made sure he knew about his family, his culture, and wanted him to feel proud about his cultural heritage. She says this is important because later on in life, it can be a big mental health issue. Some people get lost because they don't know where they come from, who they are. I mean, it's a big part of who somebody is. Jamie has one biological son, and he also knows who he is and his history. She told me about a time in school when a teacher asked if they had a family member on the Trail of Tears. And he was the only one that raised his hand. He was the only one that knew about his culture, about who he was and where he was from, you know. And so it gets lost. And 
that I think that's the biggest picture is these children are our future. If they lose way of their culture, of the language or anything, it, I mean, what do we have? What do they have? You know, what do they have? For tribal nations to continue, they need to raise their children in their communities. Even during the oral arguments before the Supreme Court last fall, several of the justices grilled the plaintiff's lawyer on this issue. They pointed out that this was the reason the Indian Child Welfare Act became law, because too many children were being taken away from their communities and homes. If there are no children, there's no one to learn the language, no one to carry on cultural traditions, and if that happens, tribal nations cease to exist. Jamie was a foster mom for almost 10 years. It was rewarding, but it got to be too much after a while. Then she met Noni, who she and Hodali are in the process of adopting. After the break, the role Iqwa played in that process. Hi everyone, this is Billy Estrain. I'm the new Notes from America intern. I'm so excited to be here this summer. One of my favorite parts of the show is hearing from you. I love talking to you and screening calls during our live broadcast because you have such amazing takes. If you haven't called in and want to, I'm waiting on the other line. We're live Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Give me a call. You can also talk to us on social media. Our Instagram and Twitter are at Notes with Kai. Again, that's notes with K-A-I. Finally, you can send a voicemail and tell us what's on your mind. To send a voicemail, visit our website. It's notesfromamerica.org. Scroll a little down the page and click on the green button that says record. Thanks for hanging out with me. We're all really excited to hear from you. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And this week, KOSU reporter Allison Herrera is telling us the story of the Sewell family. Their journey to adoption illustrates why so many child welfare advocates have considered the Indian Child Welfare Act a gold standard of family law. Here's Allison. Jamie comes from a large family and has lots of aunts, uncles, nieces, and nephews. One of those nephews is Noni's dad and has several other children that he and Noni's mom couldn't care for. Noni was sent to an emergency foster care placement right after she was born. Her birth mother struggled with addiction and couldn't take care of her. But after that, she had nowhere to go. All of her brothers and sisters were already living with another relative. So it fell to Jamie and Hodali. Jamie remembers feeling anxious about asking her husband to care for Noni. How could she ask him to take on such a big responsibility? And so whenever I got home, we were sitting out on the porch, and I had approached him about it and told him, you know, she's, they don't have nowhere to put her. You know, she's with her aunt right now, but she has three other, three of the other children. He, he told me, he said, you know, it's, it's our job, it's our duty as her family to take her because it, it, it's 
It's so important for her to know where she comes from because she's going to know who her family is. She's going to know everything about herself. A key part of the law is known as active efforts. It's something social workers and advocates of the law say is what makes it the gold standard of adoption policy and should be applied to all families. Active efforts say that before a parent's rights are terminated, everything must be done to help them stay together. That could mean drug treatment programs, parenting classes, or other help. But if that fails, then immediate or other family members must be considered to adopt or raise the child. But this is part of the law opponents say is discriminatory. That's how Jamie and Hodeli were able to care for Noni. They're her closest family. Initially, when Noni was sent to an emergency placement, it wasn't a done deal that she would be placed with the Sewells. Well, why don't you tell me about how you found out that she had been put in placement? Um, well, I actually had a DHS caseworker get a hold of me. Um, I'm not sure how they got my name, but uh, it's probably because I, I did foster care for about 10 years through ICW. Our Indian caseworker had to explain to her what it meant and what, why there was an ICWA, why, why it was in place, because she didn't even understand it. That scenario Jamie described is not uncommon. Some caseworkers don't understand the law or don't follow it at all. They don't understand that before a child is put up for adoption or placed in a non-native foster home, relatives or native foster families must be considered as an option. In Noni's case, she had a social worker from the state and a social worker from the tribe looking out for her best interest and making sure she's placed in the right home. That's why it's known as the gold standard. Jamie says caseworkers want to rush the placement process and believes they quickly want to move to terminate parents' rights. I noticed that there's a lot of conflict on some, some, in some cases there's conflicts because whenever ICW tries to step up and say, no, we need to do this, this is what's best for this child, sometimes they're like, no, we're not going to do that, you know, we don't need to do that, you know, and a lot of it is because I don't, I don't think they know, they don't understand. So I think that's why they get upset about it. And so when she was first placed with somebody... A non-native woman, and she didn't, from what we were told by our caseworker, she was not too happy when they come to, to move her. Hodeli is talking about Noni's first placement, a non-native woman who may have wanted to adopt her, but that's not how it's supposed to work. Whenever that lady found out that she wasn't going to be able to keep her, she wanted her out of her home. Because, I mean, you do fall in love with them. I, I understand that. But they told her, this is this girl's a Cherokee Nation citizen. Mm -hmm. And so we don't uh, want to hurt you, but this is how it is. Uh, and a caseworker was like, well, you need to explain to her why, why, why it's so important, you know? Because I think a lot of people don't know. The reason behind the law is to keep Native families together after decades of harmful policies by the U.S. government and religious institutions that broke up families. Hodeli and Jamie want a better future for Noni. They've been overjoyed since the very first day they brought her home. She was three weeks old, not quite a month, I don't think, when they brought her. Oh, my goodness. Uh, she was so tiny. I can show you pictures if you want to see pictures, because she was... She, Let's show her pictures. Noni was just a newborn when the Sewells brought her home. 
She required a lot of care and attention, which for other people, Hodley and Jamie's age, would seem like an enormous amount of work. But that's not how they think of it. Hodley himself was not raised by his biological family, and it's typical in Native communities for all family members to step in and take care of children, not just the parents. Historically, non-Native social workers and caseworkers have thought this approach is a sign of neglect, and it's led to a lot of family separation. The structure and community is important, says Hodley. You know, we don't let our people go. We don't want them to go to strangers. We want them to know who we are and them know that. And also, as somebody who in my entire life and my mom and grandparents and all them, we actively have to push to be part of the Indian community or we will be sidelined. We will be dismissed, you know, but that's what we do. We don't want to rush through and make a mistake and something happen. You know, they, they're, they're really fast to, I think DHS is really fast most of the time to, okay, let's just take the child out of the home. Let's just go ahead and, you know, we're done. We're, we're going to get everything. We're going to take care of this case. We're done with it. And, and that's not what they're about. That's not what they are about trying to preserve the child and put the child back with the family. Ever since the Sewells took Noni in, they say it's been amazing. She's in a home where she's loved, cared for, and with someone who isn't going to let her connection to her family and culture go. Uh, what's it been like having her around? Oh, my goodness. I've, I've not got to raise a little girl before, um, but having her is just, especially at the age I am now, she is sunshine. That's all she is. She's just, it's just the best thing that I think that we've ever done. It's I would do it over. <laughs> I would do it over again. Yeah. And she teaches us things. <laughs> At her age, she teaches us. And <laughs> this is how it goes. Uh, what was it like when you first got her? Oh, my goodness. My heart did. I just, I loved her right off the bat. <laughs> of course, she's, yeah. She's so, a great niece. Great niece, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. But, um, and also seeing him. Holder for the first time was amazing, too. It's just like, and she just like, I, we have pictures of it. She's just like looking up at him like, oh, okay, so you're going to take care of me. <laughs> and she, everywhere he goes, she follows him. She follows him everywhere he goes. It's so cute. <laughs> Noni hasn't been officially adopted by the Souls yet. They still have a few more visits with Noni's social workers to make sure things are set. They're just waiting on a call from their lawyers, and then it's on to the courthouse. And after that, Noni will go through a naming ceremony. Well, in my, in my community, when they're four months old, you have a ceremony, right? And then you have another, another one when they're four years old. Mm -hmm. But because we wanted to wait till the adoption was legal, and they yeah. get, then, then she'll get named. And then, so it would have been yeah. four months, but it's going to be a year old. But it's no problem. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to do uh, the other two kids that my son is fostering, other great niece and nephew, and so we're going to um, give them their name too. This law, the Indian Child Welfare Act, is the reason Noni is with her family. She's their future, but not only that, she's the tribal nation's future. And that's what the law was meant to protect. A, a tribe is a family, you know what I mean? And... If you keep taking those children, and if they live in a different culture, you know, a foreign culture, then they're not going to know where they're from or who they are. I mean, it's, it's very important. This is our future. 
That was reporter Allison Herrera from our partners at KOSU in Oklahoma. After hearing the Sewell story, I was still curious about what actually makes ICWA the gold standard of child welfare policy. So I called up Dr. Claudette Grinnell-Davis, who is a professor at the University of Oklahoma School of Social Work. They spent their career studying the child welfare system, and ICWA in particular. Claudette, thank you so much for, for taking time to talk with us. Thank you for the invite. You have um, spent so much time following this stuff. Why do you think it came out this way? What do you think? Was there some misunderstanding of Justice Gorsuch and Justice Amy Coney Barrett? Or I mean, what do you think led to this? Well, first of all, Justice Gorsuch has been a staunch defender of tribal sovereignty for a long time. So it's not as much a surprise from him. Justice Barrett, and also Justice Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. Those are the surprises. This is a reinforcement time and again that tribes have always been considered political entities. And that's baked into the Constitution. If you want to argue about the constitutionality of that, it's very hard. Mm -hmm. Even if you go back and look at the founding of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which has its founding date in the 1820s, there's a reason why it was placed into the Department of War. Because right. tribes were political entities, and that's where some of the issues around due process hinge. Uh, part of it is related to issues of race. Is ICWA a race-based law? The answer is no. ICWA is not a race-based law because not every American Indian child uh, is protectable. Uh, under ICWA. Several people in child welfare circles have described ICWA as the gold standard of child welfare policy. Uh, what do they mean by that? Okay. We can talk about the UN uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child. Part of what is embedded in that is that children have a right to their family, to their name, to their identity, and to their culture. ICWA is grounded in those fundamental principles, and as a result, that makes it the gold standard in that it keeps children protected within their known network of relationships and doesn't isolate them. And I mean, why isn't that what always happens with all children that are separated from their family in the United States? That's not the standard? No, that is not the standard, unfortunately. And that is due to a piece of legislation that was passed in 1998 called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, which mandates that you, you need to put a child in the most family-like placement as quickly as possible. And you can't hold a child from a family-like placement if there is an available family based solely upon race. So the quickly as possible idea is really important right. in law around child right. welfare normally. Right. I'm very familiar with the idea that um, a lot of Black family structures are not um, seen as legitimate um, and healthy in white circles, to put it bluntly. I mean, is that basically what we're talking about? That's a lot of it. Uh, absolutely. And if you go back in into the history, there are tribal communities out there that once, traditionally, once a child got to a certain age, the boys would go live with an uncle's family, a girl would go live with her aunt's family, and those 
relationships were done that way to build the web of community and connection within the community to make it stronger. Right. And that's been a part of some tribal communities for a very long time, uh, centuries. And it's precisely because of those misunderstood differences that were frequently assumed to be abandonment, neglect. Let me give you a a more hypothetical perspective on this. So let's say you have a an Indian father, an Indian mother, and they have four children, two boys, two girls. In some tribal communities, and it's been this way for a very long time, the girls refer to their mother's sisters as mother. Mm. And those relationships that would be viewed as cousins are actually siblings. And so there's a whole host of building those networks. And and that tends to happen in clans that are more matrilineal, which again is another problem in relationship to um, European settler traditions, which tend to be more patrilineal. Right. If there's not a father around, suddenly, suddenly there's a problem, but actually that's not never been a problem in the first place. Right, right. The notion of the very intense nuclear family, as it comes for, to us from Europeans, has not historically been a part. It's been a part of some tribal communities, but not all. And so the point of ICWA, to tell child welfare agencies, if you can't understand this concept, you have to nonetheless, even if it is not a, it immediately intuitive to you. Um, and the Supreme Court has now said that's perfectly appropriate. All children do better when they're connected to their kin and their families and people they know. And, you know, there are various kinds of poverty and lack in the world. And that's frequently one of the arguments that is used to justify allowing Indian children to be adopted because there are challenges on reservations. I've, I've, I've written about some of those and, and some of those frankly can be laid square at the feet of the federal government for underfunding treaty obligations. Um, But the reality is there's a poverty that also comes from not knowing who you are because anybody, if you talk to anybody who's been adopted, anybody who's been scooped, whether in the American or the Canadian context, they will always tell you that they knew a part of them was missing by not being attached to their communities. And the reality is it's a fundamental human right. People have a right to be attached to their culture and to their family. And the American child welfare system needs to do a much better job of respecting that right and finding the best placement for children within those rights. Courts are always going to be able to act in the best interest of the child to place children where they think is the child's best interest, which may or may not in the court's eyes be in relationship to to kin and family. But the reality is we have to recognize that wrenching a child from everything they know is its own form of maltreatment. And we need to start doing a better job of respecting those kinds of familial or familial adjacent ties 
that keep children whole, healthy, and connected to who they know, who they love, and the communities that love and support them. Dr. Claudette Grinnell-Davis is a professor at the Zero School of Social Work at the University of Oklahoma. Thank you so much for this insight and this time, Dr. Grinnell-Davis. Thank you. My pleasure. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Reporting, producing, and editing by Billy Estreen, Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Talk to you next time. <laughs>